John chapter 13 and verse 1. Follow along with me as we read from verse 1 to verse 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it teaches us. We thank you that it instructs us. We thank you that it corrects us, rebukes us, trains us in righteousness. Father, we pray this morning that your spirit would be at work to convict us, that your spirit would be at work to apply your word to our hearts and our lives, that we'd be transformed, that we would grow in our love for you, that we would grow in our worship to you, that we would grow in our dependence upon you, and that we would seek to honor you and serve you and obey you in all that you ask us. We pray this morning that you are glorified, Christ, that you are exalted, and that we, your church, are edified and built up. We love you, we thank you, and in your holy name we pray, amen. Now, if you are like me, you can't wait for um, Thanksgiving to end. Not because Thanksgiving is not a great holiday, not a great time of uh, eating lots of food and celebrating with family, but you know that Christmas is coming soon. And I'm one of those people that tends to wait until December 1st strictly to start singing Christmas carols. I know Chad is the very opposite. He probably started back in uh, June or July singing his Christmas carols. But I'm pretty strict about waiting until December 1st. And I've been listening to Christmas songs nonstop. And there are lots of really good Christmas songs. And there are lots of really, really bad Christmas songs. And I've been thinking about one... um, As of late, and especially in light of our text this morning, you better watch out. You better not cry. Better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's been naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. 
So be good for goodness sake. Oh, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Because Santa Claus is coming to town. Now, if you didn't think it before, I hope you do now. That's one of the scariest songs. <laughs> if not the scariest or creepiest Christmas song that there ever was, I don't know why we sing that to our children. Maybe it's the way I read it just now that, that highlighted that for you. But you should have caught on before. Not only is this a, 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 I just think, a terrible Christmas song on multiple levels um, and creepy um, and scary, but I think this teaches us and reveals to us much about um, the world that we live in and the culture that we live in and our understanding and our view of what it means to live the blessed life, or to live a blessed life, or to how to attain a blessed life. Maybe not that that necessarily means we appease some overweight man in a red suit with a ginormous beard. I'm not necessarily going that route, but I want to take it a little bit further and get past that. This fact that the blessed life is rooted in our stepping up are picking up our bootstraps and cleaning ourselves up so that we might attain what it is that we're striving for in our life. Because whatever that thing is or whatever that stuff is or whatever that position is, is going to get us to that point in life where we really feel and believe that we have attained this sense of blessedness. And this view or this understanding isn't just seen outside the church. But we can see this skewed understanding of picking ourselves up by our bootstraps and stepping up to achieve for ourselves or to atone for ourselves. We see this within the church as well, sadly. Maybe not in what we profess with our words, but with our actions. That we see that the way to enter into communion and fellowship with God, where the blessed life truly, really, really is in communion and union with our triune Lord, how do we get there? We step up. We clean ourselves up. That can often be the direction and the route that we go, but that is not the gospel. That is not the reality. In fact, that will take us further and further and further away. But we'll just continue to build up the barrier that's already there. No, the, the, the reality is that Christ steps down. He comes to us. He cleanses us. He joins us to himself, into his life. So that we might share in his blessed life and truly come into union and communion with our triune Lord. And the washing of the disciples' feet, recorded here in John chapter 13, paints a vivid picture for us of this great reality. And we're going to work through the text and we're going to just make three considerations. I want to consider three things together this morning. I want to consider or contemplate or reflect upon three realities or truths this morning. I'm just going to use the word consider because it's what I wrote down here. But consider, contemplate, reflect upon these great truths that we see in Jesus' washing of the disciples' feet. We're going to consider the depth of Jesus' foot washing. We're going to consider the effects of this washing and the example 
that Jesus sets in this washing. And I hope that all of us together are moved this morning. That we're moved to be convicted to worship, to repentance, and to humility before God and before others as well. So with that said, let's look at our first consideration in verses 1 through 5. John chapter 13. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now I just want to stop there. Because we can gloss over that really quick. But that phrase, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Not only is that an important marker or note to make of as we look at Jesus washing the disciples' feet, but that's that's an introductory phrase that really highlights and points us to the totality or the wholeness of Christ's work. Having loved his own who were in the world and having loved them to the end, we see this love as the motivation and the ground for Christ stooping down, taking the form of the servant and washing the disciples' feet. We see this love as the ground and the motivation that sends Jesus to pray for his disciples. It's the love that that is grounded and motivates him to, to go to the cross, to suffer and to die. This love with which he loved his own, the love that he loved them to the end was what motivated and grounded his entire incarnation. And his suffering. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. Now, really briefly, um, just for setting, there are three references to points of time here. Three references to points of time. The first reference is before the the Feast of Passover which most of us are familiar with the Feast of Passover. This was the annual celebration, the annual ceremony and celebration uh, of God's past deliverance of his people in the Exodus, in Egypt. It was this celebration that looked back to God's great, gracious, redemptive work in Egypt. It was also, though, a hopeful celebration that pointed forward to God's future deliverance. And it's no coincidence at all that after it says before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world of the Father, that John puts this here. There's no coincidence that the mention of Passover and the mention of Christ's hour are all smashed together here. Why? Because Christ himself is ultimately who? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the Passover Lamb. He is the promised seed of the woman. He is the Messiah, the Lord's anointed that would redeem God's people, that would deliver God's people. Before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, again, his hour being this common reference to Christ's suffering and fulfillment of God's plan of redemption, an hour that he had been talking about to his disciples for um, numerous, on numerous occasions throughout the gospel and throughout his ministry with them, that time was now. That time of suffering that he had told them about. That hour upon which the Lord had fixed that his anointed would come forward and redeem a people for himself in time and history, that was now. 
It was upon us. It was here. And the third um, point of time that's referenced is during supper. During supper. Now this most likely, most likely puts both the foot washing that's soon to take place and this supper before the feast of Passover. I know that this is uh, maybe a disputed point. Scholars are arguing it. Um, chronologically, where does all of this line up and fit? Comparing all of the different Gospels together. Um, I think most of the um, scholars that seem to be the most consistent run together, believe that this supper that they experience together right now isn't the Feast of Passover. There's lots of reasons why they um, lean that direction, but that's the case. Most of them believe that this is um, a separate supper that happens um, before the actual Feast of Passover. But again, there is no coincidence that the reference to the Passover and Christ's hour are the setting for the foot washing. So this comes to the big question as we look at the foot washing itself. What is the significance of this foot washing? What does this foot washing mean? What does it tell us about the nature of of who Jesus is? Why Jesus came? And how we're to respond? Why is John the only one who writes about it? John's the only one that spends time unpacking this section here. He's the only one that includes this foot washing scene. Well, we know uh, as a hint, John in John chapter 20, verse 30, lays out his purpose statement for the entire book. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Why is John highlighting and spending time pointing us to this moment in Jesus Jesus' ministry, this intimate moment with Jesus and his disciples. Because he wants us to see something about who Jesus is. That he is the Son of God. That he is the Christ. And that by believing in him and in him alone, you might have life in his name. And, and, And the foot washing is so much more So much more than just a foot washing. Even as grand, or even as when you take it by itself, it's it's a moment that would stun you if you were there. But there's so much more going on underneath it. Uh, Jesus often spoke in parables. Spoke in parables that revealed spiritual truths about who he was, about the kingdom, about um, the coming deliverance, about the coming salvation. He often spoke in parables, and really the foot washing in many ways is a visual parable. It's a visual parable. The foot washing serves as a visual parable that teaches his disciples then and now much about the depth and the effects of his whole work. Now, foot washing, we don't do very often here. I don't think we do foot washing at all uh, anymore. And that's probably okay, right? No one is sitting there. I'm hoping that we do a foot washing after this. I promise you we will not be doing uh, a foot washing ceremony after the service uh, for, for many reasons. We'll actually talk about it in a little bit. But to wash someone's feet, especially in this context, even more so than it would be today, was a deeply, deeply humiliating act. It was a deeply humiliating act and condescending act. One that was reserved for the most menial, lowly of servants. And even in most cases, Jewish servants or Jewish slaves weren't even permitted to wash the feet of someone else. Typically, this was always reserved to that of a Gentile slave 
Because it was that lowly of a task to wash the dirty feet of another. It was a lowly, condescending, humiliating act. And as Jesus performs this action, it serves again a visual parable to us of Christ's condescension, of Christ's humiliation via his incarnation, along with all the works that he took on as the God-man. And and, and nowhere do we see this um, more clearly explained and and looked at than in uh, Philippians chapter 2. You can look there with me. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Where Paul says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Do you see this? The the divine Son of God, the Logos, the Word of God, takes on human flesh. He does not lose any of His divinity. He doesn't set aside any of the divine nature. We need to be very, very clear about that. He fully maintains the divine nature. But he adds to himself humanity together in one person. Two natures, one person, truly human, truly God. One person, not mixing the two. There is a distinction, but they are one in the one person Jesus, the God-man. Now, I can't go too much further, and I won't say too much more than that. Why? Because very quickly you run out of bounds into heresy and unorthodoxy, and quite frankly, I'd rather not do that. So, But the Word takes on flesh. The divine Son of God clothes himself in humanity, taking on the form of a servant. Oh, the depths. This is one of the only responses when we look at this glorious mystery and reality of the divine Son incarnate. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. Oh, the depths, the wisdom and knowledge of God that He would send forth His very own Son to dwell among us in flesh. That He would take the form of a servant That he would take off his outer garments. And that he would humbly get to his knees and wash the feet of his disciples. Oh, the depths and the wisdom and the knowledge of God that he would send forth his son. That he would go to a cross. And die a sinner's death. Oh, the depths. Late in time, behold him come. Offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. 
Mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. That's a much better Christmas song than the first one. I love these Christmas songs, not because they're easy to sing, they're fun to sing. Man, there is so much packed in that teaches us, that teaches us about the incarnation, that teaches us about what took place when the divine son took on human flesh. And ultimately, what is the only improper response? Praise adoration, amazement that this takes place, that this would ever take place for sinners like you and like me. But what is the meaning of the foot washing? What happens? Or what's, what is Jesus pointing them forward to? What reality is Jesus pointing them forward to? to? What takes place when one is washed? And there's dispute in um, what the primary application of the foot washing was intended to be. Um, there are people on the side that the primary application, the primary focus of this entire washing is on um, spiritual cleansing. The other, on the other hand, people are on the side that this is simply supposed to be uh, the example of humble service. So which is it? Is the foot washing's application intended to emphasize Christ's cleansing work on our behalf? Or the ongoing humble service of His followers who are called to reflect and exemplify His humility? Which is it? Spiritual cleansing or humble service? Yes. Both. Christ, in His washing of the disciples' feet, points us to both of these realities. Both of these applications. And we're going to look at both, um, observe both of them, but in their proper order. So this leads us to our second consideration. The effects of Jesus's foot washing. Look at verses 6 through 12. I'll start back at verse 4. He laid aside his outer garments. And taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. We'll see as we unpack this that Jesus' washing of the disciples' feet has a twofold effect. And we'll see these effects come out um, through Peter's objections. Thankful, in a way, that Peter in his um, boldness, in his um, ignorance, or in his pride, thankful that Peter steps up, thankful that Christ rebukes him so that we might have a chance to, to learn much about um, this great work that Christ brings as he washes us. Um, so for those of you that are always nervous about raising your hand in um, Bible study and, and you're nervous about just being rebuked or corrected, it's okay. You'll learn from it and everyone else will learn from your ignorance. It's good. So, Peter objects. Christ comes to Peter to wash his feet. Lord, you, you, the Messiah, the Son of God, 
my teacher, my Lord, my master, you take this position, you wash my feet. Peter's not just simply asking him, oh, you're going to wash my feet. No, there's, there's disdain. There's frustration at what he sees Jesus doing as he comes before him to wash his feet. You wash my feet? Peter's first objection expresses, expresses this initial shock and disdain for Jesus' action. But the second objection, as Jesus responds with the first, you don't understand now, but you're going to understand. And Peter at that moment should have done what? Shut up. I don't understand now. I'll understand later. But this isn't what Peter does. You will never wash my feet. Outright pride, disobedience. I don't know why you're doing this. And I don't care to wait to find out you're not going to wash my feet. But Christ responds and puts Peter into his place. And, and his response after that is, is very different. You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus is saying, life with me and life with my Father is dependent upon me washing you. Your coming into communion and fellowship with me and receiving all of the benefits of who I am and what I'm going to accomplish is dependent upon me serving you in this way, upon me washing you. The promises of eternal life, the future kingdom promises that we've been talking about for a long time, Peter, those are only for those who I wash. You have no portion, you have no share, you have no inheritance with me unless I wash you. And what does he mean by wash? Jesus is not just simply talking about, unless I wash your feet right now, the physical action. There's a spiritual reality that he's pointing forward to about washing. There's something more significant about the washing. What is it? I think Augustine says it well. That whole passion of Christ. That whole suffering of Christ that he underwent is our cleansing. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You don't need to turn there. I'll read it for you. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. When Christ washes us, the pollution that sin brought, the unrighteousness that sin brings, the rebellion that it brings, and the wrath that it brings, Christ cleanses. How? 
with his very own blood, with his very own life. To be washed by Christ is to be made new, to be made whole, to be made righteous. How? Because Christ was obedient, wholly obedient unto the law. The law's demand for perfection, but also the law's demand for punishment. In Christ, pays with his own blood that demand for punishment. But he fully satisfies every demand of the law. So that in him, his cleansing, washing work on the cross, we might be holy, made new, and justified, and sanctified, and set apart as holy unto the Lord. This is this first effect of being washed in Christ. It's a one-time act that Christ himself undertook on the cross, in time, in history, for you and for me as those who are in Christ. Amen. The benefits of Christ's work are only for those who are united to Him. Who have a share with Him. And only those who have been washed by Him have this union and share with Him. And if that's you, You can sing with boldness. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be the sin of double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to me, come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or or I die. Our sharing in the blessed life of Christ is rooted in his atoning work on our behalf. This is that washing that's required in order to have a share with him. But thankfully for Peter's boldness and speaking up, there's another layer to this that Jesus reveals and makes known. Look at verses 9 and 10. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. I want to have a share with you. Let's not stop at just simply washing my dirty feet. But let's wash the rest of my polluted body. My hands, my head, all of me. Christ, wash me, clean me, sanctify me. So that I might have this share with you. But Peter misses something again that Jesus has to bring before him. Christ rightly rebukes Peter again. For Peter speaks as if he had not been given any pardon of sin or any sanctification by the Spirit at this point. It seems as though Peter had forgotten or was ignorant of the fact that God has already done a great work of grace in his life. He's already began this good work that he will bring to completion in the life of Peter. Look at what he says. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. Again, this initial cleansing that Christ 
provides is a once-for-all act. But those cleansed by this once-and-for-all act by Christ will doubtless need to have future sins washed or cleaned as we're continually being sanctified and transformed into His image and likeness. The good work that He already began, He will will bring it to completion. We are wholly justified, declared righteous before God because of the finished work of Christ. And what does He continue to do? He doesn't stop there, but He continues by the work of His Spirit to make us holy. To continue to clean up the dust of the flesh that remains as we walk throughout our lives. He continues to clean and remove and cleanse us of sin's remaining stains and the works of the flesh that are at war with the Spirit who indwells us. He doesn't leave us after His work is complete. He continues to work and is continuing to work. Our sharing in the blessed life of Christ is rooted in His atoning work and is marked by the continuing removal of sin's stains. Verse 11. For he knew who was to betray him. That being Judas. We don't have as much time, obviously, this morning to dig into um, Judas's betrayal. There's much more that gets unpacked um, in verses 18 and following on this. But just, just note this point. That when Jesus stoops down to wash the disciples' feet who were at the dinner, who's included? The one who was to betray him. And I think Spurgeon says this well. And we'll move on from this verse after this point. Spurgeon says, Our Lord took a towel and girded himself and washed their feet. I washed the traitor's feet and gently handled that heel which had been lifted up against him. Washing it from the dust gathered in its secret walk secret walk upon the traitor's errand. Even Jesus stoops down in humble service of this traitor. What patience Jesus has. What humility and grace Jesus has. This leads to the third consideration This one will go a bit quicker. Third consideration is the example Jesus sets before us in his washing of the disciples' feet. Look at verse 12. And when he had washed their feet and he had put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you. If you do them. Now what doesn't this mean? Because this application and this example that Christ sets can go many different ways. It can go a very wrong way. And it can be implied that Jesus is setting before us a new sacrament. Sacrament that the church is to continue. I don't know if that's just an annual thing, a weekly thing. A monthly thing, but a new sacrament 
a regular sacrament. The church is to continue to wash the feet of others. But this is not the case. This is not an action that we literally are to continue to do. There's clearly a lack of New Testament reference to foot washing following this. In uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 10, um, there is a reference to how uh, the church cares for and treats godly widows. And, and one of the signs of, of a godly widow is this washing of the saints' feet. But there's very, very little following this. In the early church and continuing of uh, the church washing people's feet on a regular basis as a sacrament of the church. So, per Chad's request, when I said I was teaching John chapter 13, we're not going to be washing anyone's feet. Chad said, you could teach John 13, but just don't wash anyone's feet afterward. So, we're not going to do it. And for those of you who are germaphobes, you're breathing easy now. I don't know what we would do if we were living in this time and place. All the dirt that we've been picking up on our feet and this whole con I don't know how some of you would live or survive. I, I probably wouldn't, I know that. Um, anyway, but this isn't an action that we are to continue. But then what does it mean? What is it pointing us forward to? How do we respond? What is the application that Christ is pointing us forward to? As he says, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Well, again, looking back at Philippians chapter 2, in verse 1, just a few verses back before the verses we read earlier. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself and took the form of a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by, by becoming obedient, even to death on a cross. Have this mindset among yourselves, which is yours. In Christ. Christ's disciples then and his disciples now are meant to live lives that reflect the heart and the mindset and the attitude of Jesus in the way that they love, in the way that they serve, in the way they forgive, pursue peace and reconciliation through the ways that they show hospitality to others. Unbelievers and believers alike. Paul sets uh, the example again in Romans chapter 12 when he says, Let your love be genuine. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Contribute to the needs of saints. Seek to show hospitality. Followers of Christ who have been washed by His blood, who have been united to Christ, by His Spirit, who have been made new, who have been made alive. We seek to reflect the heart and the attitude and the love and the service to others just as Christ has done for us. He says again, if I, your teacher and Lord, wash your feet, humble myself before you, to serve you, to love you, you also do that for others. The good news 
of the gospel is not a formula for how to step up, clean yourself up, make yourself right before God. The good news of the gospel is about the Savior who steps down and makes you right before God, who joins you to himself by the giving of his own life, by the shedding of his own blood. Look to him. Those of you who are unbelievers sitting here this morning, look to him. Your only hope of righteousness, your only hope of salvation, your only hope of blessedness and eternal life is found in union, in communion with Christ Himself. Look to Him. Believer, continue to look to Christ who is your righteousness, who is your sanctification. Look to Him. In Christ, we come to share in His blessed life. We receive justification. We receive the atonement for sin. We receive sanctification and the joy of humble service to others. Oh, the depths. What a wonder it is that God would send His Son to clothe Himself in humanity. To die for us. To make us right before God. To share in His life with Him and with one another. What a wonder it is. What grace. What mercy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We thank you for the abundant grace that you have lavished upon us in your Son. God, so that communion and union with Him, we might be justified, sanctified, pardoned of sin, so we might be sealed with your Spirit. the assurance of our inheritance, the the assurance of our share with you as your children. Father, we thank you for this great work of grace and mercy that you've extended to us. God, I pray that as a result that our love for you would grow, our worship for you would grow. Father, we pray in all this that you'd be glorified, that your son Christ exalted, and that we, your church, edified and built up. We thank you. We love you. In your holy name we pray. Amen.